My journey of finding seeds was really not just about seeds. It was really my journey to recover myself as a young girl, as immigrant, as person of color, as a Palestinian. The world's message has always been very clear that my existence was an inconvenience. When you start to really love yourself, then it's very hard for another power to control you. It's very hard for someone to come now and convince me that, oh, I'm not worth living. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Vivian Sansour, founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. Vivian has worked with farmers worldwide on issues relating to agriculture and independence. She's a 2020-2021 Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative Fellow at Harvard University, where she's working on an autobiographical book documenting her work saving seeds in Palestine and around the world. Together, we spoke about how food sovereignty aligns with the struggle of Palestinian resistance, how the military occupation of Palestine affects the farming practices that go on there, and how love ultimately is the greatest form of resistance to colonial oppression. I'll share our conversation momentarily, but first, coming up this Thursday, October 21st at 5 o'clock, Eslin hosts a virtual book tour with Susanna Barkataki. Susanna supports practitioners to lead with equity, diversity, and yogic values while growing thriving practices and businesses. She'll be in conversation with Danny Fluker Jr., queer Atlanta native and executive director of Black Boys Ohm. Danny is an Esalen teacher in residence, alum, and a writer and activist whose vision is to uplift the black community, black boys in particular, with programs centering on their physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Tickets to the event are $35, but as part of our end-of-year campaign, Esalen is offering free tickets to the first 50 people to sign up who become a friend of Esalen. You'll receive the comp code and the RSVP link to the event when you become a friend. Just go to esalen.org give. And now here's my conversation with Vivian Sansour. Yeah, I was born in Jerusalem, in Palestine, and I... Grew up in a little town called Bejala, which is uh, just a few kilometers away from uh, Jerusalem. And it was a very hilly area with lots of fruit trees, particularly fruit trees. It was a small village, really. Uh, but today, this town, which is part of the Bethlehem area, is more of a, an urban concentration. I grew up in a place that, in a lot of ways, doesn't look at all the way it used to. I, yeah, it was a very much uh, country living, if you will. You know, we, we didn't have dinner late. <laughs> People went to bed really early. We also woke up early. And our life was all about uh, the natural world. And, and, and we were part of it. And uh, that's how we lived, by seasons and also interacting and building with what we had around us. Mm. And, and what were the circumstances that led your family to move to the United States? Well, like many places in the world, uh, we come from a very wounded place and a place that is impacted by a lot of uh, policies implemented by the United States. And uh, as such, uh, we, we experienced the uh, first Palestinian uprising, the Intifada, uh, which is an uprising for liberation and equal rights against Israeli occupation. And in that, uh, a lot of uh, economic difficulties, of course, were endured by Palestinians and my family is one of them. Uh, we were 
I guess, lucky enough to have access to folks in the United States who, in the end, uh, made it possible for us to apply for immigration and then come to the United States. So it was political uh, realities that were pretty brutal and led us to start a new journey in our lives. Mm. And then you you moved, I, I know a bit about your story. So I know you moved to North Carolina. I'm also from North Carolina. I grew up in Chapel Hill and I was curious, what was it like for a young girl? I'm not sure exactly how old you were. I'd love for you to tell me, what was it like for a young girl to move to a Southern United States state? Yeah, it was... <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I actually, you know, it was actually a very painful experience, but I look at it now and I and I have to laugh. Not it's just because obviously I'm I'm far away from the the moment. Nobody told like nobody told me, you know what? You know, like nobody I was not prepared. My idea of the United States was uh, all the stuff I saw on TV. And so for me it was um uh, Pretty fascinating to arrive in a place that had so much land and so much fertile land and yet very little food produced, especially at that time. Uh, there was so much focus uh, in North, North Carolina is changing now. That's what I'm saying, that especially Chapel Hill area where there's a lot more urban farms today and everything. But at that time, none of that. All I saw was just massive amounts of lands with Uh, very expensive food and even as a kid I was like this is weird they have land why don't they have food uh fresh food what part of the state were you in uh we were in eastern North Carolina so it was also rural very rural so but it was all corn and soy and you know Mm. um so it was fascinating for me I also really wasn't accustomed to a life where you have to drive everywhere so that was uh, unusual but what was really unusual for me which is not now obviously but how little people knew about us like we had learned a lot about the United States uh, but people in the U.S. seemed to have no idea where I came from and for a little girl I was really shocked and there were times when um like young kids, especially in school, would say, ask me things that were very shocking to me. Like I've, I was asked if I'm Arab, do you have a tail? And I, I mean, I, I think I was 10. I, I just didn't understand like how to answer that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, of course I didn't understand. Uh, of course, now I understand why a kid would ask another kid such a question, but uh, at that not that it's okay, but it's like I didn't understand then. So it was very shocking. It was uh, also very painful because I didn't understand why there was so much uh, rejection. But as in every experience, there was also a lot of love encountered. You know, I had a lovely experience meeting uh, a woman. Her name was Mrs. Simpson. And I wish I could find her again, who was a librarian. And she just saw me coming into the library as a little girl. And she really took me under her wing. She taught me English. Uh, She taught me about the world a lot. And it was from there that she really helped me kind of um, move into a new, like a new phase of my life. And that was for me also a first lesson about how one individual can really change the life of another. And it was Mm -hmm. very beautiful. 
Yes, that's really that's really great. Yeah, librarians, man, librarians have <laughs> this this, and you're a librarian yourself. Now, in 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 one sense of the words, I would love for you to to tell us about this project, the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library that you've begun. It's funny you said you're a librarian. I was like, what is he talking about? How does he know that? Throughout my college years in North Carolina, I was working in the library. So I was like, oh, how does he know that? Uh, but yeah, I, wow. You know what? I never thought about it. Uh, it was a librarian who kind of took me under her wing. And then I worked in the library. And I guess now I started a seed library. Yeah, I always found a lot of comfort and uh, like safe haven in libraries. Maybe also because they were quiet, but every book took you to another world. Mm. And it's the same with the seed library I created. Maybe it wasn't so conscious, but I just started collecting seeds from varieties I liked, whether it was uh, carrot or flowers or, and I would just put the label them, put the, put them in, in these little jars and I would put them somewhere cool. And then I started to share with friends and then it happened. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if we can start this kind of conversation about the Palestine heirloom seed library by you kind of defining what, what are seed libraries and, and how do they differ from seed banks? Yeah, uh, seed libraries, well, I can speak about my seed library, but and the ones I've seen are very humble initiatives. They're not, uh, they don't have usually uh, huge refrigeration and labs. It's really a community approach to uh, keeping seeds in the hands of people and uh, keeping people, us as communities, uh, part of this co-creation relationship we have with the natural world where we are the ones who select the seeds. We're also the ones who share the seeds. We're also the ones who plant the seeds and we're also the ones who cultivate them. We eat them. And it's a process of a constant exchange and constant change also. Uh, so they're not designed to take a biological material and save it for a doomsday where, you know, it's not in a vault where no one uh, is going to touch it until we really need to. It's more that we are co-evolving with these uh, uh, food crops that our ancestors gifted us. And we're continuing this tradition uh, by keeping them alive in the field. And that's a very important point, not just for the community aspect of it, but even as we are dealing with climate change, uh, one of the things that I think seed libraries do is keep the seeds alive in the field so that they continue to co-evolve with the changing climate. Mm. So like in Palestine, if you speak to farmers, one of the main things they share is that heirloom seeds know the soil. So when you say like, why is this doing so well? They're like, oh, it knows the soil. That means there's been a, a relationship throughout history, throughout time, where literally the culture of the soil knows and interacts with what the seed is made of. And so together, they've kind of developed a relationship where they can grow together. And we need that more and more because we're going to be facing even worse climate change challenges. 
And in order to face them, we're going to, you know, have to have the crops that will survive, that will survive through the changes. Um, and so seed libraries are a living thing. They're a living archive. They're not um, a, a historical archive only. They're a historical living archive. Ah. And that's what I feel is the main difference. And also they are a constantly changing because they're living uh storytellers you know they tell stories not only of the people who were here before but also of us today and we can get to be designers of whatever that story is but also they are an opportunity for us to make choices to become designers as we select the different seed crops that's how we design the future of our food and so i i, I love seed libraries because they are not only a safe haven, but also they are a creation center for what we want. You are a seed. Like we are seeds of, you know, our own parents. And in Arabic, we actually say, we call people, like you can call your children zarya. They say, oh, this is your zarya, which means this is your plant. This is your seed. Uh, because we are also seeds of that, of, of the terrains we, we grow up in, the terrains we walk in, the terrain we exist in. And when did you begin the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library? And, and what was the specific kind of inspiration for embarking upon this journey? There are like three threads to answer this question. One is that obviously as a young girl, I moved to uh, another country and I had to adjust to it. And there was a big part of me that was always missing my home, that was missing the terrain I grew up in, uh, literally the soil, the trees, the, the smell of things. And I always kind of longed for it. And then years later, when I went back to Palestine and I was working with farmers as a writer, I learned a lot about my own culture, but then also about all the things that I loved and I missed that had disappeared. And so I started to be heavily motivated by that because I was in grief, basically. And the grief was so intense that I also was rebelling against it to say, you know, I don't want to grieve more things. I want to uh, salvage as much as I can of my culture. And then also working with farmers really closely, seeing how vulnerable they were becoming more and more every day because companies and other entities were controlling basically their lives by controlling their seeds. And the more seeds they lost, the, the less autonomy they had. And then thirdly, I uh, had just started a PhD program in North Carolina, actually, in agriculture and life science. And I was so disturbed by the way people in a lot of what's called, I guess, development projects and all of that really treat farmers as if they don't have knowledge, as if they don't have intelligence. And I was so deeply offended by that, that I really wanted to go back and actually, you know, tell the story of the genius of the farmers that I knew and I lived with and I, and I know so well about how well they know soil, sand, water, everything. 
so I, I went back, I, I'm a proud PhD dropout. Uh, and I went back and I, and I was like, I don't need this PhD, I'm gonna go and actually get my real PhD from people who have been in soil, you know what I mean, working with it. Um, and that's how it started. I started to look for seeds that I remembered farmers had told me they couldn't find anymore. Uh, and then I also followed my joy, like my my love for certain varieties that I met or that I remembered or that I missed. And I started to just give myself away to the moments and to the threads that I kept following to find, because I, I believed that they were still there because elders have always kept their seeds in, in little boxes and their in their closets you just you know had to take the time to not just look for the actual seed but to listen to listen to our elders who have been so marginalized uh, by modern day society but every seed that i put in each jar was for me a, a portal to another world another story and yeah. so kind of my imagination was my safe haven having grown up in a very unsafe world i found a lot of safety in the books and the jars and and the stories like the stories really put me at ease in creating this seed library you also spoke to hundreds of palestinian farmers about the destruction of their lands as a result of the israeli military occupation since 1967 so yeah i'm curious about what kind of perspectives you you gleaned from this this activity? Uh, huge, huge. It was uh, huge uh, because there I was. You know, I'm I've I've been all over the world, and people talk about uh, their love for land, uh, particularly in the United States. I had lived in North Carolina, in California, where people had the choice about what they want to do, where they want to live. And yet there I was witnessing the pain that farmers who have planted trees and, and were so attached to them as their children, basically, being severed from their lands, being severed from their trees, uh, trees that were literally thousands years old, were being uprooted for the building of uh, more uh, Israeli colonies, uh, for people who came from Europe and the United States and who had no relationship to the land, um, settlers. And I witnessed also farmers who their love for their trees and for nature and for what their grandparents left them, led them to endure lots of pain and trouble. Like, for example, Palestinian olive farmers who were severed from their trees, their olive groves. They, you know, um, the Israeli army surrounded their groves, for example, or built the wall. So in order for them to access their trees, they had to apply for permits. Only one or two people can get to the harvest, uh, which if you've ever harvested an olive tree, I mean, it requires a, a whole family, a community to harvest one tree. And so they would go walk, in shrub because they were never also allowed to go into the, their fields to weed. And so they would walk in, in thorny terrain and climb mountains just to get to their olive trees and then carry the olives literally on their backs. Uh, that's 
commitment. That is love. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then for me to, in the end, just eat a little bit of olive oil that, you know, just so I can dip my bread in it. It was uh, very humbling, but also very eye-opening. Also, many farmers were severed from their water source, and yet they still, I mean, I'm actually one of them because I farm in an area where we are also not allowed to have our own water tank. And so we actually planted trees and uh, we've been walking with bottles of water far distances in order just to keep our trees alive. And so that's a real, that's, that's a real life, what do you call it? That's a real life burden. That's a real life commitment too, because it's not easy. You have to really believe that trees are living beings that are worth you taking all this time and effort to keep them alive. Mm. Yeah. So at some point in your adult life, you returned to, to Palestine to live and to, to farm. I'm curious, how has Palestine changed in your lifetime? Like, for example, what does the Jordan Valley look like at this point in time versus what it was like in, in your youth? Yeah, it's a very heavy question for me because I I live with this grief every day because I I grew up in a place that doesn't exist anymore. You know, as Palestinians, we are often told that we don't exist. Uh, but of course, for me, that was always comical because I know, I know, I know, like that I come from a very ancient lineage of people who have names for their trees, names for their traditions and fruits and vegetables. We, you know, I know that we exist, right? And so to, to have witnessed, uh, I'm in my 40s, so in the last 20-some years, I've witnessed the complete degradation of, of that world, you know, our, our biocultural heritage has been so severely destroyed. So places like the Jordan Valley, for example, where my parents would take us to, for example, harvest eggplants and tomatoes from these lush and biodiverse farms that were run by families. Today, uh, I go there and it's a desert, literal desert, uh, because the communities have been severed from their water stores. They have uh, natural aquifers all over the Jordan Valley, but uh, Israeli water company has taken over them and uh, the people in the village cannot access water anymore. So obviously they can't, the water runs right through their villages and yet they're literally dying of thirst because they have to buy now their own water from these Israeli company. And uh, also, because their farms have become deserts, they now seek work and they, to live. And so they end up being workers, farm workers, uh, right where their own farms existed in these massive agribusiness farms uh, that produce monocultures like uh, uh, dates and other herbs or whatever from Israeli companies. And they're all settlers again you know it's it's very uh, painful to watch a farmer who knows everything about the terrain and how to work this land be transformed from a from a productive entity to now this 
worker who has to, sorry, from an imaginative, also not just productive, a human being uh, who loves his land and works with it to now a day worker who works in an agribusiness plantation, basically. So uh, that has changed. Uh, also, what's changed is the fact that we're more and more restricted. So being able to forage in the mountains that I grew up foraging in, and we're very much a foraging culture, is no longer possible. Uh, very specifically in the hill where I grew up, there is now a settler who came from, I think, from Brooklyn, and uh, he took over the mountain and uh, he has machine guns and he's protected by the army. And so where I collected the wild oregano, for example, or uh, our gondelia, akub, or our dandelions, you know, that is a terrain I no longer feel safe to go to. Uh, and very soon I won't be even able to walk there anyway because they're building a gigantic wall and the wall is almost complete and so the town i grew up in for example in bethlehem is completely surrounded by a concrete wall that has checkpoints and so we live in these kind of layers of prison first your neighborhood uh, the, there are also refugee camps of people who were forced out of their homes who live in Bethlehem so you've got the refugee camp uh, you've got then the town because it's enclosed inside a wall more and more people building on top of each other and so I used to live in a natural world and now I live in a concrete jungle that for me resembles more cemetery than a city mm. and so if that tells you something that's how severely it has been changed and that's not just a crime against palestinians it's a crime against humanity in general and against nature because there's so much biodiversity so much knowledge so much uh, heritage that has been destroyed in the process, not to mention the spirit of people that has been crushed. It's a really, a really bleak picture that you, that you paint. Thank you so much for, for speaking to that. And I just want to acknowledge how difficult that, that must be to, to live that and to, and to speak about that. So I, I really thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it is because it's a grief like you carry all the time. And one of the things I always tell my friends when I'm walking around like here in the United States, like the fact that we have a tree that we can sit under its shade, that's 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 a treasure, really. You know, I know a, a dear friend of mine who witnessed the killing of one of his neighbors in an army raid one night. And he called me and I thought he was going to ask me, you know, I don't know, to come give him a hug or something. He's like, can I come over? I just want to sit under the shade of a tree. And that for me is everything like that a human being experiences such trauma and cannot find even the tenderness of a shade of a tree to sit under. That's, that's just so cruel. And I started also to find when I'm there that it's hard for me to find the shade of a tree. So it is a very bleak and painful picture, but it's also why I do the work I do. And I, 
and I try to create these tender spaces and work with folks to expand these little green spaces in Palestine where people can sit under a tree, where people can come, especially young people, and learn about their bioculture, learn about their heritage, and try to expand it. I may not be able to change the world, obviously, entirely, but just like Mrs. Simpson helped me kind of carry carried me through a hard time. I hope that, you know, my contribution would be that I created like a little more opening for others to take it on and continue in the future. Yeah. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the reactions to your work that you find in, in Palestine. How do people, yeah. How do people react when you speak to them about creating an, an heirloom seed library, or you want to involve them in some way in the project? Yeah, people have been incredibly open and so loving in in this process. I have been so completely overwhelmed by the amount of love and excitement. And it's combined with a little bit of fear, of course, because what I was doing wasn't telling people, hey, come, we have to do this as much as I was doing it. And the more I did it, the more people wanted to kind of come and see like, what's up? What's going on here? Right. Um, And the more scary it became because what what I was what I was asking people to do is fall in love the way I was falling in love with something that can be gone any minute you know it's like I'm asking people to fall in love with someone who's dying October 29th to 31st, 2021, internationally renowned author and artist Day Schildkret of Morning Altars will teach students how to use nature, art, and ritual to transform, heal, and make meaning from this chaotic time. To book your spot, go to esalen.org workshops. The love is so huge because everybody within their pores, you know, they still, you know, we're not so severed from our grandparents. So we still remember the smell of a cucumber that, you know, uh, we used to crunch on, or we still remember the, the taste of, a, of an heirloom lettuce. So it's not so foreign. There's a huge movement happening in Palestine. It's happening uh, slowly, but it's happening and it's, it's growing massively. Uh, also farmers who have also taken big risks, you know, uh, by planting things that they're, they weren't sure they're going to be able to sell or, you know, and that was huge. Uh, and I, and I'm just so grateful for it. Are the farmers who are growing food in, in Palestine only selling food to the Palestinian people? I'm, I'm, I'm a bit unclear about the, the way the economy works there. Um, Depends. Uh, sometimes, actually, uh, mostly local, yeah. Uh, or there are lots of middlemen who come and they they basically contract farmers within the West Bank and they buy their produce very cheaply uh, and sell it in Israeli markets. Uh, and that's a whole other beast of its own because 
a lot of Palestinian farmers are being taken advantage of very economically by these basically companies that come and just uh, buy in bulk. They'll say, oh, if you grow tomatoes for me, mostly labor intensive crop. So like in California, you see how like we have strawberry farms everywhere that requires so much labor. So you know, that's what you would find, for example, in uh, Palestinian towns where greenhouses are built just for uh, basically Israeli market. Uh, but other than that, it's mostly yeah, local Palestinian market because we have no way, we have no control over our borders. We have no control uh, over mostly our streets. So you can't really just put some fresh produce in a in a truck and just go anywhere and sell it it's, it's not so easy so because we have restriction of movement and so mostly it's uh, local within the parameters of the town or the next town over mm, i see thank you for for explaining that to me another rather bleak Rather big picture. <laughs> I never said it was a. a I'm, no, no, I'm not. I'm not looking for anything that's that's rosy and optimistic. I mean, in truth, we don't hear a lot of these stories in the United States. You know, it's sort of like the a disappeared area of the world. Occasionally, it comes up, and it usually comes up as like, a, you know, a, a picture of mass degradation and and an awful happening. But it's that the ordinary Palestinian life, the, the positive, like for example, the farming, we just don't see images and hear stories of that that often. Yeah, and actually, thank you. That's a very good point because uh, that is, I would say in a way, the biggest joy I get from the work I've done with the Seed Library. I didn't set out to do that, but I learned that just by me sharing the beauty that I love, because even in this bleak reality, uh, I love, you know, just extracting that beauty and kind of showing it and sharing it, you know, and because I feel it, I experience it so much. I mean, I'm not trying to uh, save something that I think is uh, not worth saving. I think it's so beautiful that everybody in the world, like I remember one time I had just visited this uh, elder woman in a village and she was so fascinating telling me about all these uh, traditions about making uh, bread and I was driving back home and uh, I was driving through these mountains and I was thinking wow this is so beautiful and I just witnessed it all by myself like everybody should see like everybody should know this uh, and one of the things I, I found out was when I would share this with my friends in, you know, outside of Palestine, like th there was so much shock and bewilderment, like, because of what you just said, like what we see in the media, what, what people, what's be been filtered is only the defeated story and the sad story, which of course the sad story is there. Uh, but also there is that beautiful story of people perseverant of, uh, nature so abundant of uh, varieties of seeds that uh, grow with no irrigation like there's just so much wonder that sadly you know gets completely dismissed for the sake of just entertaining this awful picture of dehumanizing another people mm -hmm. 
You say that the greatest form of resistance to colonial powers is to learn to love yourself. Yes, because my journey of finding seeds was really not just about seeds. It was really my my journey to recover myself because as a young girl, as an immigrant, as uh, a person of color, as you know, a lot of things, the world as a Palestinian, the world's message has always been very clear that my existence was an inconvenience. And in fact, that who I am and where I come from uh, was something, you know, trash, basically, like, it's not important. Uh, And in order for us to be of any value, we had to have the validation from, uh, Europe or validation from another, you know, imperial uh, entity like, you know, the United States or, you know, you had to have validation from somewhere outside of you. And in the process of doing that, what you're taught is that the things that are valuable to you, the things that you grew up with, the things that make up who you are, are unnecessary and should be, in in fact, oppressed. And so when you start to see the value of that, and then you start to see yourself, you start to see, oh, my God, uh, my grandmother knew how to grow food even when there was a drought. Like, oh, my God, she's a genius. Like, how did that happen? I want to know. Or just, uh, you know, learning about the literature of your people that we're not even allowed to to learn in school. Uh, So for me, when, when I start to put this puzzle together, because I couldn't believe the lie, there was something in me that just didn't believe it. I start to see that, oh my God, like when you start to really love yourself and be more in harmony uh, and gratitude about what's so beautiful about who you are, then it's very hard for another power to control you. It's very hard for someone to come now and convince me that, oh, I'm not worth living. I'm more now you know, able to fight for, for life because I know I'm worth it. And I think it's not unique to Palestinians. Like, you know, Black folks have been told the same thing. Uh, people in South America have been told the same thing. Immigrants are told the same thing. Uh, Native Americans have been so disrespected and, you know, dismissed in their very own lands. And you know, it's the power we have is to say, no, it's, you know, this is not true. Like that we are so, whatever the word is, uncivilized. In fact, it's the people who come and came and brutalized us, who actually exercised violence, uh, who actually lacked the ability to, to see and the connection to their own hearts to see that civilization is about taking care of each other, not destroying each other. It's really hard for someone to dominate you if you actually know who you are. So well put. Thank you. It's really brilliantly put. You you have this this quote that being a farmer, a grower of food, you're part artist and part scientist. And clearly, you know, you've been so successful in your artistry and in creating this. Is there some bittersweet aspect to being embraced 
by a colonizing culture. You know, you're, you're written about in the New York Times, you're written about in these papers and the kind of in the same outlets that are so aligned in a certain, maybe not New York Times, but so aligned in a certain sense with the, with forces of oppression. I'm just wondering how it feels for you. Um, yeah, that's a brilliant question, uh, Sam. It's a brilliant question because uh, it's in the heart of the work, actually, in that it's such a challenging dance because on one hand, you really are creating another world. Like the world we're creating isn't a world that says we want to destroy another world. It's a world that says, you know, we have things in this world that are worth living for and that are beautiful and tender. And they go beyond nationalism. They go beyond uh, a lot of old concepts, right? I mean, this is why you and I are talking because we're trying to, even though we come from different histories, we share we share the human experience and we share this planet and we share our presence in the universe together. And so we assume that you and I have a shared vision to create something different, that something else is possible. But then you're still kind of have to, you still have to uh, maneuver within the dominant world. And maneuvering within the dominant world also requires to have the patience, if you will, and the ability to figure out how do I work with the elements of the dominant world to expand my other worlds. Mm. And I guess for me, that's how I see my presence within these dominant world uh, institutions. You know, I'm also speaking to you from Harvard. I'm like, I don't understand, you know, when Harvard first came to me asking me to do a fellowship here, I was like, do you know that I am like an out of structure person? Uh, but actually, I'm finding it, uh, you know, very rewarding to be in these spaces, but not to be attached to them, because it allows me to share and exchange and be that bridge between the dominant world and the other world. Is it challenging? Absolutely. It's challenging every day. But what's great for me, at least, I really enjoy my freedom from the desire or the need for validation. So I can be in the New York Times. I can be at Harvard. I can be in, I don't know, the Venice Biennale. And I can also not be in it. And I am totally fine. For me, they're not... They're not a goal. They are uh, a vessel, an opportunity, uh, a path in order to plant more seeds for something else. I'd love to hear a bit about a project that's an extension of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, which is your traveling kitchen. Yeah, actually, uh, I love to tell you about that because it links to what we were just talking about, dominant world versus non-dominant world. Uh, and the traveling kitchen for me initially was an extension of the seed library. I was working with farmers who took a chance on like, okay, I'll grow this variety for you, but you know, nobody knows about it. I'm not selling it. Uh, people don't know how to cook it anymore. So I thought I want a kitchen that can come apart, fit in my car 
and I want to be able to travel to different places with it and kind of set it up so it can bring people together and we can learn from each other. And so I collaborated with an artist named Ayud Arafe, who is uh, from Bethlehem, and he built the kitchen for me and we designed it together. And then I started doing these tours where I would just go stop in a village and uh, we'll start talking about the varieties. And it was always an opportunity to learn about new things and cook these things and for people to get excited about it. Uh, so it, it, it worked as an intergenerational space of exchange. It worked as a research vessel. And it also worked for an opportunity for us to encourage more people to uh, buy the varieties from farmers directly and also learn how to cook the varieties that, you know, they have forgotten. And so uh, that was the initial idea of the traveling kitchen. But then the traveling kitchen developed wings and it uh, started to fly places. <laughs> and so I started to do things uh, like that in different places around the world. And that kind of expanded the conversation again about like what kind of world we want to live in. And, you know, it went from Jamaica to London to Guatemala to the United States, California, you know, New York. Now uh, in Italy, I'm building this show, which is about the flying traveling kitchen and how it really created uh, different portals in which each one, we created another reality in another place. And all of them are basically opportunities and openings to, through this little kitchen, through sharing a meal, through understanding our food system, uh, that we become more able to communicate, exchange, and create new opportunities for us to see something else is possible. I would love to hear a bit about your advice to someone listening to this podcast who might want to start a seed library of their own. What are some of the concrete or specific aspects one would have to take into account, whether that's equipment or, or space or time or money, point of view, etc.? Yeah, I'm a little hesitant to give advice, honestly. <laughs> uh, but uh, I can just share my own uh, journey and say that if I were to advise someone, uh, I would say just fall in love, like allow yourself to really fall madly in love with something and follow that, like follow that trail, even if it's scary. And for me, it was falling in love with, for example, zinnia flowers and then just going to find them and then collect them. Um, and to be, to be simple, to start really simply. And it's, it's really simple process of just, for example, having jars like mason jars, uh, uh, just putting them somewhere you know, having starting your own little collection at home, which is what I I started. So, and and as far as money's concerned, I think it's very dangerous to to think that you need money to start anything. 
you know, I, I really had to trust because like I told you, when I started the seed library, I quit my PhD program and I didn't have a job. So I really had to trust that I'm not advising people to do that. I'm just <laughs> saying that you, I did have to trust that something will come out of this. You know, at least I can grow my own food. Uh, and obviously not everybody can do that, but everybody can fall in love with one thing, like a seed or a variety and just like follow that trail. Ask people who grow it, why they grow it. Uh, learn about where you are and why you are where you are and, and, and kind of how where you are informed who you are. And I would just say, be very, very curious. Vivian, what's one thing that you love and appreciate about yourself? <laughs> uh, you had to ask me this question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm going to answer. I really love, I like that I'm daring. I like that I can see things that others tell me are impossible and still go for them. Vivian, you'll be teaching at Esalen in December. You'll be sharing some of your wisdom and some of your passion. Can't wait to see you in Big Sur. It will be such a pleasure to, um, to welcome you here and show you the Esalen Farm and Garden. I can't wait myself. I, you know, I'm a Californian and I love uh, California, but I've also never been to Big Sur and I've heard a lot about what you guys are doing. So I am so excited to meet you and to meet everybody else and learn more about uh, these beautiful mountains. Vivian, deep appreciation for the, the work that you're doing in the world. And, and thanks so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Email me with your thoughts at voices at Join Miranda McPherson October 25th to 29th in a course that shares a holistic and feminine approach to surrender and non-dual realization based on a practice that she calls ego relaxation, embracing the totality of our experience as a gateway into our deepest nature. Until next time, be well.